Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter. A health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. He dropped the ball, but when I hit him, I lowered my head too much. Uh, I, you know, I remember I spun around, I, I crushed the, the crushed two cervical vertebrae in my neck and badly damaged my spinal cord. And so after I hit, I, I spin around. I'm laying kind of face face down on the ground with my head turned to the right. And so, and I can see you know, through my helmet, I can see my right arm, which was only 12, 13 inches away from my head or from my face. But Man, it's it's weird. It's like it wasn't even my arm. It wasn't even attached to me. And I I remember going through the motion of trying to get up, and I watched my arm just roll over. And when I watched it roll over, I couldn't feel it roll over. I couldn't feel anything. And that was the that was the last movement I had for you know at least another another month. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Rod, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out uh, about your story by way of somebody who knew you. And when I read, you know, sort of the description of your life story, I thought, yeah, this is definitely something that really resonates with me. Um, but before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking what I think is a very relevant question, given where this begins. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? You mean You mean social group being like, the popular kids or yeah, that's exactly. Okay. Well, I would have to say I was definitely one of the popular kids and, and probably one of the leaders of the popular kids. And that was even, even after my injury and after everything um, and my, you know, my paralysis that, that resulted, um, you know, in junior high. So my, my ninth grade year, which I was in junior high, that was kind of my last year of being physically normal. And I was, you know, the quarterback on the football team, played basketball, baseball, um, and actually did very well academically too, um, mm-hmm. even before the injury. Then the injury happens before I even, before I'm even a student in high school. And so I come in as a sophomore in high school after the injury. And, um, but, you know, it's amazing how things kind of plug back in to normal, but, but still part of, you know, part of the popular group. But, you know, one thing, you know, and it's interesting you asked that question. I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, even though, you know, I was certainly in the popular group, um, you know, and I know I think maybe today in high school it's 
a lot more clicky. Back when where I was, when and where I was in high school, you didn't have that much clickiness. I mean, I you know I was I probably had a group of you know fifty friends that were you know we were all friends. Um, you know, there, there really wasn't a lot of um, you know you know pointing to the hey look look at that group of nerds or something like that. We did, we just didn't really we do that. You know, you'd go to the cafeteria to eat lunch and you know, you'd sit with, you know, different people every day. Yeah. Yeah. So for people that don't have any context about the injury, uh, take us, take us to that moment uh, because, you know, like I said, uh, you know, before we hit record here, as I was reading the story, I was like, wait a minute, this is literally the first episode of Friday Night Lights in your life story. Um, you know, when I was, I was hearing that, uh, so take us that moment, but I do want to ask you quite a bit about playing football because that's one of those things that especially quarterbacks are people that I've always been fascinated by. Okay. Sure. Well, okay. So I, I said, um, I, I'm coming into high school. I'm, I'm 15 years old, finished, finished, you know, junior high in the ninth grade, which was, so yeah, that would have been around May. Um, that summer I'm practicing all, all summer, um, you know, just doing drills and just practicing football, getting ready for the fall. Um, the week before school supposed to start, um, this high school where I went, which was South Stokes High School in Walnut Cove, North Carolina, just to, to give you some context, I mean, a, a country high school. Um, the, the largest city to, to us was Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We were north of Winston-Salem. Um, we're about maybe 30 minutes north of Winston-Salem. Um, so so we, we started the week before high school. We had those that want to play football. We we went to what's called football camp, and so everybody lived at the high school. We you know had sleeping bags and we slept in the classrooms for a week and practice. Had just intense practices for that entire week. Um, you know, I was I was a pretty good athlete, and I was one of the fortunate ones. Only two of it, two sophomores made the varsity, and I was one of them. Um, so at the end of the week we had the inter inter squad scrimmage where we're, we're, we're dressed out, you know, full uniforms, like we were going to play a regular game. You know, the, the scrimmage is open to the whole town, you know, places is full of people. You know, I've never played on a stage that large in my life. You know, it's all, you know, junior highs. That's always the, the, the largest, you know, no, no big stadiums with, you know, the really, manicured grass and you know this was a pretty big deal for me so I'm a little jacked up when I'm out there so I was actually the starting free safety I'd I'd earned the starting free safety job just in football camp and was you know was pushing to be the starting quarterback but just hadn't gotten there yet um so how how it happened in the so in the in the scrimmage you know we broke up into you know the we started with the first string defense going to play the off an offense but you know, back then, as opposed to now, you know the really the, the the really good players played both ways. Now you have a separate offense and a separate defense, typically. And so the offense was kind of a you know makeshift kind of put together type offense, just to give us a look and run some plays against us. Um, well, the the tight end um, on that offense, who was normally who was typically the starting guard on on offense. Um, just for fun, he wanted he split out and played tight end. And this kid was about ooh, six three, probably weighed two sixty five, two seventy. A huge guy went on to play um, college football at Wake Forest. Um, so he went out, goes to tight end. I'm I'm playing free safety, and I'm probably 
I'm probably six feet, maybe weigh 160. So I'm not, you know, I hadn't at this point in my life, I hadn't been in the gym to, you know, I'm just not old enough. You know, I've been in junior high. You know, these, these guys, I mean, this guy was a, this tight end was a senior, had been, you know, lifting weights for three solid years. Um, well, anyway, the, the first play was a pass across the middle. Um, I saw him, you know, come across the line, saw the quarterback, um, you know, tracked his eyes, saw where he was going with the ball, couldn't get there fast enough to intercept it. Um, but when the when the ball got close, well, when it hit his hands, I hit him as hard as I could. And you know, you know, I, I, you know, I was like I said, I was I was kind of jacked up. Um, you know, I wanted to show everybody there. You know, new guy here. I want to show everybody how hard I can hit, and I did. And um, he dropped the ball. But when I hit him, I lowered my head too much. I mean, not not an intentional trying to spear him or anything. But um, hit him hard. Um, hit him on the crown of my head my, or my helmet. Hit the top of his thigh. And when I hit, uh, uh, you know, I remember I spun around. I, I crushed the, the crushed two cervical vertebrae in my neck and badly damaged my spinal cord. And so after I hit, I, I spin around. I'm laying kind of face face down on the ground with my head turn to the right. And so, and I can see you know, through my helmet, I can see my right arm, which was only 12, 13 inches away from my head or from my face. But, um, man, it, it's, it's weird. I, it, it was like it wasn't even my arm. It wasn't even attached to me. And I, I remember going through the motion of trying to get up and I watched my arm just roll over. And when I watched it roll over, I couldn't feel it roll over. I couldn't feel anything. And that was the that was the last movement I had for you know at least another another month. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of a breaking point in the story. If you want me to stop yeah. there, yeah. No, so you know, like I remember because it was the you know it was in the very beginning of the book. You said you know I was 15 years old in 1981 when I broke my neck playing high school football. And you mentioned that you know you were you know one of the most heralded athletes in the school's history. And you said, you know, one game I threw for over 400 yards and five touchdowns. I averaged 20 points in a game in basketball. I played baseball and ran track. You seem like you're almost this athletic phenom uh, as a freshman who was destined for really, really big sort of athletic success. And to have something like that happen so early, um, what did that do for your sense of identity? Because, you know, I've talked to people who are professional athletes and when their career ends, whether it's through an injury or whether it's through just the shelf life of an athlete, this is one of the biggest challenges they have is finding who they are in, you know, after something that has defined them for so long. Right. Well, well, you know, what may be a little bit different from me than like these professional athletes um, is I was so young when this happened. I mean, only being 15 years old, and and but but really my my whole life before then I mean athletics was such a large part of it and I tell you it was kind of hard in the book just to you know list some of my stats because I didn't want to come off as you know bragging or anything but I thought it, I thought it was necessary to kind of set the table or set the tone as to kind of you know this was a pretty this was a kind of a far fall from being from really being kind of pretty that kind of that good. Um, but as far as the how it changed my identity, like I said, all right, so I'm only 15. And so the truth of the matter is I don't think the 15-year-old brain could really comprehend what had happened. Um, mm-hmm. 
And it, so, so once I, you know, and we can talk about going through the, you know, the next three and a half months of rehab and then back to school, but, but, you know, when I plugged back into school, um, my identity, I don't, I don't think it it changed at all. Um, and, And it's because, you know, I was, I was pretty smart, you know, I made really good grades, you know, before this injury. And then, I, so I continued to make good grades. Um, I mean, my identity, I guess my identity changed as an athlete, which, and there were some tough times about that. I remember, and especially like going to basketball games and sitting in the stands, watching my friends play and doing well, knowing that if I were out there, I would be doing just as well. And just having a good time. And here I am, you know, no longer an athlete sitting in the bleachers and that, you know, that, that was kind of tough. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll admit that. And that, that was tough to get over. Um, but, but as far as the, my identity and far as my life went, I really, when I plugged back into school, um, you know, personality wise, the way I was treated by my friends, um, my, you know, the, 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 my competitive drive, especially my competitive drive, it, it, it didn't, it didn't end with the injury. Yeah. Well, so I, I want to come back to this, but I, I have to ask you about the actual experience of becoming this good because I played one year, one semester of seventh grade junior high football in Texas. And you know, this from playing football in Texas, there are seventh graders, the size of grown men as an, <laughs> as a scrawny Indian kid, I quickly realized football was not for me. I even remember when the coach called me in eighth grade, he's like, are you coming out for football this year? I was like, why would I come out for football to get the shit beat out of me? Like it was the kind of thing where, you know, those tackling girls where you, this was my hero moment. Like the coach complimented some kid who wanted to be a wide receiver who volunteered to play center. And I was like, and the coach was like, I need a guard. And I, you know, I thought, Oh, this is it. This is my perfect opportunity to be validated by the coach. And so we get up, we do these tackling drills, you know, when you have lineman drills and literally it was me against this huge kid and he pushed me back like 20 yards and everybody just started laughing. And I, I think that was my moment where I realized, all right, this is not meant to be. But uh, what is it? I mean, what is it that leads to the level of uh, skill and performance that somebody like you had, particularly at such a young age? Like what enabled that? Well, I think you have to have some natural ability or some God given ability um, but I tell you, I think why, you know, I became a good athlete is when I was a kid, I was outside playing constantly. I mean, I, I was, you know, there wasn't any, you know, how it is today with video games and that kind of stuff. There was none of that. And um, I was just, I mean, I was outside. I mean, I would, you know, I started playing backyard football um, when I was five years old. And just played and played and played. And I, I think that, um, you know, just that the constant, de- I mean, so you develop early, um, you develop your athletic skills, um, you know, b- out there, you know, by doing it. And I, I think that that had a lot to do with it. But I mean, there's, you know, there's just different people have different talent levels. I mean, you know, yeah. some people are smarter than others. Some people are better looking than others and some people are better <laughs> athletes than others. You know, yeah. you, you get what you get. Um, but um, I mean, I, I must have had some natural ability because, um, you know, I did. I mean, I, I did well, you know, even starting in Little League football, you know, I, I did well. And I did well in, in, in basketball also. Um, well, actually, and baseball, too. But just um 
I mean, I think I mean, like I said, it's natural talent plus, but plus playing a lot. Um, you know, I, know, I remember in junior high, my my buddy and I used to in the summertime we would play basketball one on one. You know, hours. I mean, in the hot sun. I remember doing that as well. Yeah, I mean, we just played and played and played, and that's how yeah. you get better is by playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I remember the the I, in seventh grade, I was the most improved player on my basketball team. And I was a little, always joke. I was like, oh, that just means you're the shittiest player on the team. But I remember the summer between seventh and eighth grade, my math teacher coached the coach, the uh, girls basketball team. And he had watched when we practiced. He said, wow, you've gotten a lot better. Uh, there's what you know, one other question about this. So I remember that seventh grade summer when I played and, and you know this from, you know, being out in the heat in the North Carolina, in the Texas humidity and heat, you get out there and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be so much fun and amazing. And the moment you put on those pads and you put on those helmets, you realize I'm going to get sick or I'm going to throw up. And I had two friends who were huge kids and they quit after two days and I stuck it out the entire season. Why do you think that is? Like, what is it that differentiates people? Like, because they definitely were far more probably prone to actually succeed than I was. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Well, what it is that makes some people stick it out and some not. Um, I'm going to guess, um, like for your situation and, and for mine, too, you would pro- you probably had parents that that instilled a, oh, yeah. you know, that that the, the thought process in your head that once you start something, you're going to finish it. Yeah. And, um, you know, this and you're, you're not going to be a quitter. I couldn't have, I couldn't imagine, and not just sports, but just quitting anything in the middle of it. That yeah. if I've committed to doing something, man, I couldn't imagine. And and it's it's just how I was brought up. It's how I was mm-hmm. raised. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, now that I, I know the timeline of the 80s and, you know, you mentioned you're in Mobile, Alabama and, you know, just given our current cost, I have to ask, like, what were race relations like at the time when you grew up and, and how, how did sports play a role in that? Well, man, that's... That's a great question. And let me go back to, um, and, I, and, it, it, and I put this in the book and I put it in there for the, you know, for a specific reason um, to talk about race relations a little bit. And of course, it's part of my growing up. But before I moved to King, North Carolina, when we went to the seventh grade, and that's where I was throughout my, the rest of my you know, junior high and high school, I lived in a, in a town called Emporia, Virginia. Now, Emporia is probably about 50%, at least 50% black, 50% white. Um, the, it was, that was the first time I'd ever gone to, you know, public elementary school when there were, you know, just as many black kids as white kids. Um, although, as far as I'm concerned in that town, my, the race relations I had with, 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 my friends who, who were black kids was really good. However, in, in that town, you still had, it was still segregated um, as far as like the, the youth sports teams. Um, yeah. not, not that there were any rules that, Hey, no blacks can come over and play in the white league. And I think maybe one or two would, but, but it, it was just, I mean, it was just kind of the, the culture of the town. Um, mm. But it, it's interesting that, the so my, when we we moved to that town, I think we were there only two years. The first year, my brother and I, my brother's a year older than I am, we played in the you know football in the white league. Well, the next year, my dad decided that he wanted to. My dad always wanted to coach us, and he wouldn't you know they they weren't wouldn't allow him to coach in the on, basically in the white team. So he went over to it was it was called the community youth center CYC. That's where all the black kids went. And he he became he he coached that team, and my brother and I. There was about sixty kids on the team, so there's two white kids and about fifty eight black kids, um, and we had played that football season together. I, I was in the 
uh, see, sixth grade, and my, my brother was in the seventh. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life, even today, looking back on it, because we were, I mean, I, I, my brother and I, we were actually friends with these kids. This wasn't, you know, just the two the two, the two token white kids, you know, you, you know, that's kind of in reverse of what, what you normally hear. But yeah. um, and it was it was one of the greatest experiences that, that I've ever had. Now, moving to King, North Carolina, completely different in high school because there just weren't nearly the amount of, or the number of, of black kids there. But there were no problem. I, I don't think there weren't I mean, there wasn't any any problems, um, any race relation problems there. Um, but now when I moved to Alabama and because this was after, you know, I graduated from law school in 92, um, there's, and you know, not that there were any big race problems down here when I got here, but it's a different, it's it's different, um, kind of attitude, I think about race relations in what I will call the deep South, which is like Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, as opposed to Tennessee and North Carolina and Virginia. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the reason I that that question came up for me when I was hearing you write about football and sort of the South is, you know, like I said, I grew up in a small Texas town and there were definitely undertones of racism. Like I, I remember very distinctly, I had a friend, you know, we had a black kid who got stabbed at our school, like they got in a fight. And, you know, I had this very close friend and his parents were very, very kind to me. And there were days when I would hear things come out of their mouth and it was just like blatant racism towards black people, yet they didn't have the same attitudes towards me. And and I think what always struck me about that was we weren't talking about uneducated rednecks. We're like talking with people with PhDs who come from the wealthiest families in town. And I, I just found that so striking that somebody who is so educated Somebody who is that wealthy could have that attitude. It really, you know, I, I, and it was just, it was shocking every single time I heard it because I'm here. I am this kid in seventh grade hearing his mom, my, my friend's mom, like make these racial slurs while driving me to school or, and it just really struck me as so strange. Yeah. And, and I, I've grown up with that too. I mean, it, it's yeah. that, that, that's, I don't think that's uncommon, but I tell you what I do think is happening now. Uh, or I think it's every the every generation. Like I don't think uh, our generation is does not have the I, I, is not as racist as the last. And I think the as you get away from say say slavery and you know I guess with eighteen sixties and you know the farther you get away from it, I think the better the better it has become. Um, I mean, my kids aren't. I mean, they're there's no racist um, thought that I think ever enters their heads, um, you know, but I, but I did grow up, you, you know, and I think, and, and as you said too, um, you know, yeah. even other kids, parents w- would make, you know, just kind of the snide comments sometimes. And you just, I, I, I wasn't raised like that. So, I mean, and it's not like I wouldn't say anything. I just kind of, you know, listen to it and, you know, yeah. okay. And, 
Well, I think it's, it's, you know, it's interesting, you know, being an Indian person, like, you know, we're like, you know, and, and I'm not saying this out of ego, but like people kind of view us as sort of a model minority, right? Like what do Indians do? We start companies, we become doctors and engineers and lawyers. Um, and so yet, but I mean, I've even heard racist things come out of my own parents' mouths where I'm like, okay, that's a little weird. Why did you say that? But, um, you know, I, I want to come back to the race thing when we talk about your career as a lawyer, because I think there's a lot of interesting ties there. But um, let, let's go back to this moment, you know, in rehab. You know, the thing that really struck me at the beginning is, you know, you said maybe because of my youth or the brain condition, I was always upbeat in the days following surgery. I smiled and laughed at my family and friends who came to visit. My smile was actually genuine. Oddly, I was never depressed. My life had been forever changed. But for some reason, I was always genuinely upbeat. And that stood in such stark contrast to that, you know, moment in Friday Night Lights when you get to the second episode in Jason Street is like, you know, on the verge of breaking up with his girlfriend and all hell breaks loose. And uh, like, what is it like? Why is it that you had this response to such a tragic situation and other people don't? You know, I, it, it, I don't I'm not sh- sure, although I'm not sure everybody, you know, has, would have a different a different attitude on it with with they had, a, a, you know, their tragic situation. But you know, I think it, I tell you what. I think it goes back to, you know, you know when when I had the accident. Um, you know, I had um, my life prior to that was 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 about as spectacular as it could be, and you know, I had. So your personality is based on that, and so you have this level of confidence, um, you know, that that is ingrained in you. And so when this happened, um, you know, your personality just does not change overnight. So you're still the same person inside that, you know, this, this whole 15 years of your life, this person that, and personality that's been created, you have this horrible, tragic event. Now you're, you're lying in a hospital bed and you cannot move anything, you know, below the neck. Um, but what you've brought into it stays with you. And so, um, you know, and I don't know why it was that, um, you know, I did some, I mean, I, I did, I, I, I genuinely stayed upbeat. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't have a day or two where, you know, I had some bad days. But um, but for the you know, for the most part, yeah, I mean, it, I was genuinely an, an upbeat person. You know, I guess it was the, you know, especially once I started being able to move, you know, some stuff again, it was, all right, let's, you know, let's get into rehab and let's see what we can do and see what we're going to have left to move on with my life. Yeah. Well, I think that what's interesting to me is you did far more than move on with your life. I mean, you went on to become class president. You had girlfriends. You were a valedictorian. I mean, that's that's pretty extraordinary considering that, you know, you faced adversity that would probably, you know, derail the average person. So I guess where I want to start is, you know, how did this end up affecting your friendships and your relationships? Because again, like, you know, your story, like other than the moment of the injury, when I compare it to the, the you know, Friday Night Lights TV show where this guy's girlfriend dumps him, his friendships change. Yours is like the polar opposite. You, you know, your girlfriend stayed with you. You became class president. Uh, so I had to ask, you know, how did this end up in fact affecting your social relationships and your, fa- you know, relationship with your family? Well, it, social relationships were not affected at all. Um, you know, I, I, I stayed friends with the friends I had. I, you know, had more friends even after it. Um, you know, even today, I, I'm very close with my best friend from high school. He played. We we played basketball. He didn't play football, but he played basketball. Um, we're still great friends today. 
you know, not my girlfriend. You know, here I was coming in. I was going to be big man on campus. I decided I, you know, I, I needed to break up with her before before high school started, which I did. And um, you know, then this happened. But uh, but she she graciously took me back. Um, um, but you you talk about a, a hit there. It makes you makes you a little bit more humble. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you have something like this. But and I dated her throughout high school, and then you know went off to college, and it was kind of you know how that goes. Um, yeah, but but no, and that's a, it's really um, and, yeah. My, my friends never, and like I said earlier, they did not ever treat me any differently. Um, and 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 my family relations, family was was basically the same too. I mean, my brother's a year older than me. We've always been close. Um, you know, I've got three sisters. Um, you know, my, I mean, my parent, my parents are divorced now, but they were married throughout, you know, all of my schooling and they didn't get divorced till later on in, in life, but um, still very close to them. Um, you know, but you know, one thing when you have an, a, an injury like this, you know, it, it's taxing on your family. You know, yeah. um, my mom was at the hospital and the rehab center every day, you know, and, and we've got at the time that my brother was at home and, and I had two sisters at home. Um, you know, they've got lives going on. You know, my dad's, you know, out running his business. You know, my grandmother came over to, to live with us for a while to, um, you know, to do the cleaning and the cooking. And it's it's taxing. Um, so it's, it's not just you that's uh, that's or, or me that's affected by this. It, it, it affects everybody. And, and I think when I maybe when I first got back to high school, I think my friends may have been a little, um, you know, a little tepid maybe, or not nervous, but I mean, you know, treat me a you know, little, not nicer or anything, but just, you know, like I was a little more fragile, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. of a person than I was, but, but it didn't take long because I didn't really change as a person inside. Um, And then things just, you know, started going on as they normally did. So you went on to become a you know a trial lawyer. What, what what prompted your interest in the law of all things? You know, my grandfather was a lawyer and a judge, and so that was kind of it. But but I didn't have some burning desire to to be a lawyer. Um, you know, I was more interested in business. I was an economics major, undergrad, and um, you know, I, just, I, I basically went on to law school because. You know, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and I didn't really know, you know, really what I wanted to do. So I just I just just signed up for law school and then off I went. And then, you know, I did the um, once I got there, I did the I did the JD MBA program um, to get my master's in business just because I, you know, I was, I was really probably more interested in that. But I but I've not I mean, um, but in my career, you know, I've just been a straight up lawyer without having yeah. the business part of what I studied has, has had nothing to do with being a lawyer. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of why I wanted to talk about law in particular is um, because I think it's such an interesting career, particularly in the context of race, the fact that you're a lawyer in the South, you know, like when I think about the fact that you're in mobile, like, I mean, I'm guessing you're probably very familiar with uh, Brian Stevens work on the, uh, um, you know, his equal justice initiative project. And, you know, I mean, when you read a story like just mercy, and you see what happens, you know, I've had, you know, criminal, you know, criminal defense attorneys here. So I think we love the idea of 
you know, justice being black and white, but it's not, you know, I mean, and you're a lawyer. Why is that? You know, like, why is it? It it seems to me like this system does not really, it's not equal justice. Well, uh, well, first of all, I I do not do any criminal work. Yeah. Um, So that. That's but but now I'll tell you one of my best one of my best friends, you know, I, I go to, I hit the gym every morning, you know, before work. Um, and, and and my my one of my best friends, you know, does the same. And he is a criminal defense lawyer. Um, and, you know, he'll tell me he'll say, look, you know, when we we live on the other side of Mobile Bay, we got about a 10 mile, you know, or eight to 10 mile trip across Mobile Bay to downtown Mobile is where we work. And we, you can, one of the ways you can get across either the interstate or what's known as the causeway, which is the highway that goes across, you know, some of the, it's part land and part, part water, part bridge. But he said, and he tells me, he goes, look, when I see policemen, you know, have people pulled over on the causeway, he goes nine times out of 10, they're black. Yeah. Not the policeman, but who's getting pulled over. And, um, you know, I've never noticed that because, you know, because, you know, he, him being a criminal defense lawyer, he sees he sees this more than I do. And so it's more, you know, it's more apparent and it's more part of his life. That that's what he sees. And, you know, why that is, I, you know, that's I, I guess that's why we're going through what, what we're going through today with, uh, yeah. you know, with the Black Lives Matter. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's real. There's yeah. no doubt about it, but now, but further, further to what your, what your, the question was, uh, you know, why justice isn't the same and, and, or fair or, and I don't know, I mean, just getting on beyond the a black and white or a racial thing is, yeah. you know, I remember when I first started practicing, I thought judges, you know, you know, here I am, I guess what I'm 20, let's see, 20 24, 25 years old, I guess, 26, when I first started practicing law. And so you go in, you're just some, you know, you're new and you get into the courtroom for the first time. And these judges, you know, they're all so much older. Most of them, most of them were male with white, you know, white hair and gray hair. And um, you thought that, 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 oh, my God, these must be the wisest people that, that, you know, there is. And. They just they'll follow the law and they're, they're going to be they're going to make these incredible wise decisions. Well, but the thing is, what I've learned is, you, you know, judges, um, you know, when they make make decisions on cases or, you know, in legal matters, you know, they bring their personality and their political views into that mm-hmm. office. You know, you've yeah. got plaintiff oriented judges, you've got defense oriented judges, you've got judges that are down the middle. I mean, there's some judges down here that. You know, you know how they're going to rule on something, but before you even, you know, you, before you even file a motion, you know if you're going to win it or not. Because if they're, you know, I'm a defense lawyer, and if I mean some of the, some judges are very plaintiff oriented, and they're they're not like say you file a motion for summary judgment, which is something that you know gets gets the case thrown out as a matter of law, even though you think it's due to be granted, you know going in it's not going to be. Um, and that's just, you know, you don't have a, th- these aren't computers up there that, that just, that get all the information and, and process it and come out with what they, what should be the correct decision. You know, these are yeah. people up there making decisions and their, their past and their experiences go into them to, um, mm-hmm. and their biases go into their decisions. 
Yeah, was, that's what I was going to ask you about next is biases. So, you know, I had Sean Askenazi here who uh, was a, you know, former criminal defense attorney made turned chocolate maker. And one of the things that he said that really struck me, we were talking about plea bargains. And he said, you know, people take plea bargains all day long for crimes they didn't commit because they're so terrified of the alternative, which is basically a much lengthier sentence. He said, if anybody went to trial, he said, if, if half these people actually went to trial the way they, you know, are supposed to be able to, the entire system would break down. So, you know, what I wonder is when you have biases embedded into people, and, you know, of course, all of us have biases, is there any way to achieve some level of objectivity in the system? Well, I, uh, yeah, because of the way the jury system works. I mean, you're going to have, and what I'm saying, I mean, so you're going to have 12, in Alabama, you're going to have 12 people on a jury in a criminal or any case that's in the, that's in state, the state court system. And so the way you get objectivity is if you get a juror, if you get, get jurors that, you know, really you want the, you want the biases to equal out. You know, so you got one, you got people on the left, you got people on the right. So what you want is a decision that comes out, you know, that that takes away biases because they're going to have to, they got to work it out. uh, And then you get that final decision or, you know, the verdict. And, um, and that's the way, that's the way you want it. That's why, and what I do, you know, jury selection is so important. You know, uh-huh. making sure you it's not that you get the right jurors. You just want to make sure you don't get the, the wrong jurors. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, so it kind of makes me wonder, I mean, you being a, a lawyer in a place like Mobile, Alabama, I mean, you know, you kind of alluded to it. When you see what's happening right now in this country as a lawyer, you know, particularly a lawyer in the South, you know, what do you make of it? You know, do you in your mind where what is our path to change here? a change that actually leads us to a better place. Well, see, and that's the problem with, with all this, you know, I see the demonstrations, you know, some peaceful, I see the riots and it seems like it's all really, I mean, what, what, what the stimulus for all that was, or what, what was the, you know, it started with, um, you know, the one up, uh, up in Minnesota where the, the cop is kneeling on the guy's neck and then, then he dies, which, you know, and everybody sees that video, and you're just like, "Oh my God, this is." I mean, if you watch that and think that's okay, I mean, I think there's something wrong with you. Um, yeah. But that—that's. I mean, and then all the the past. It was. It's. It's the white cops killing the black guys, and that's kind of the, the. That's the way this has kind of all started. And I, I, there, there must be some sort of a problem there. But being down here in Mobile, Alabama. I don't, and I and I don't stay in some ivory tower where I go to work. I mean, I'm out in the community somewhat. Um, I don't see this systemic racism at the ground level. Um, wow. I mean, I've got a, and I've had this. Uh, I've got a black kid who's my little brother. We started off in Big Brothers Big Sisters when he was probably in the third grade. I'd go see him at his elementary school once a week, and now he is a sophomore in high school. And what we do now is, uh, you know, about once a month or maybe a little more frequently, you know, I come, I pick him up and we go out, we either, you know, we have lunch, we go to the movies, we hang out, we just talk. Um, and so, you know, I, I see nothing, you know, between the two of us, of course, I mean, it's just a, it's a wonderful relationship, but I mean, I'm in, 
I, you know, I'm in, I, I'm, I see his friends and stuff. And, um, you know, I, I don't see this, this racism, um, at least not in any form that is, you know, palpable or, or just, just, you know, right out, right out in the open. And it may be because Alabama was like in Mississippi were so bad for so long that I think racism down here is probably not as bad as it is in other other states. Yeah, it's that makes me kind of wonder, you know, I think what I, I wonder is what misperceptions because you know i mean i'm a liberal person who grew up on in california of all places where it's incredibly diverse and um you know i mean it's very clear like you know very few people in where i live you know tend to vote trump and uh you know i I wonder what misperceptions do you think that somebody like me or people like you know myself and, and you know my peers who basically consume media that would be considered you know left biased media have about places like mobile, because I think that in our minds, I think our, our stereotype of Alabama, which isn't entirely accurate. And I, I, you know, this is something I even learned in Texas. My mom commented, you know, when we moved to California, she said, you know, she's like, I think I miss about being in college station is people are so friendly there. Like you go to a bar in Texas or you go into a restaurant, uh, people are just friendly. They talk to you. Whereas, you know, you go to a grocery store in California, people are like, get on, get on. There's other people here. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's how it is. I mean, in, in mobile, it's, I mean, it's a friendly place. Um, you know, you go, you go to the grocery store, you go to bars, you go to restaurants. It's yeah, pe- people, um, people talk w- with each other. It's, I mean, it's kind of a nice, nice place to be. But you know, I, I think though the perception of Alabama going so far back and, and the way it was, it's been portray- portrayed in movies. Um, you know, um, although you know, like Mississippi Burning, of course, that was over in Mississippi, but. But but then you got you know, like the the up in Selma the 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 march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, I mean that stuff happened. I mean the, the, the pro, the, so it, it's I think it's hard to I think it takes a long time to to even attempt to erase those memories. I, which I mean I don't I don't think you ever want to completely erase that memory any anyway because you you know I think you need your history out there. But um, I mean there was some bad stuff going on in the Deep South and. Um, you know, I think there, there's a there's a museum in Montgomery, I think, that has all the oh, it's got, you know, stories or, or at least the names of, of all the, the black people that were lynched and killed in Alabama. Um, and it's just I've not been there. I want to go. But um, I mean, it's got to be haunting just to go into a place like that. And, and that really happened. And, you, you know, you think today. You know, me and I, I mean, I've always grown up in the South, although Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, I, I don't that, that's those are really I mean, they are the South, but it's really kind of more somewhat mid-Atlantic states or at least I don't I don't consider that the deep South. Um, but um, but down here, it's I mean, there, there, there was some bad stuff that went on and you, like you can't even but like sitting here today, you probably can't even it's hard to even imagine that. That, that people could be killed like they were, you know, what, what, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, um, you know, in, in the United States like that. So I, I, I think, though, that, so the perception that you get, um, 
you know, if you're not from, you know, this, say you're not from Alabama, that you get this perception that Alabama is such a racist place. Um, uh, it, it's probably just from the from the past. But but if you know if you spend any time here, um, uh, you know, there's I, I don't think there's a there's a huge racial problem down here. I mean, like even in Mobile, there's not been like huge protests. There's been any rioting down here. And, you know, Mobile, I mean, the city of Mobile is probably 40% black. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, the other thing I wonder is um, having had the life experience you had, you know, having had such a tragic injury, um, how did that shape and influence the kind of parent you've been and, and the messages that you've passed on to your kids? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure... It is. It has shaped me as far as a parent that much, because I, I still, even after the injury, I went on to lead the life I wanted to lead, regardless of the injury. And so, you know, the way I lead my lead my life, and, and I have always since I, I had my injury, is I mean, this is just something I've got to deal with, but I'm not going to allow it to affect you know, the decisions I make and and how I go forward in my life. I mean, although I'm not going to, other than, well, I'm not going to take a job as somebody who's going to be, you know, um, building houses or doing anything. (laughs) That's not, that's not in the realm of possibility, but, um, and and it's really, you know, even looking back on it. And when you ask me that question, I guess it's really kind of um, almost surprising how, how that that my injury didn't affect my personality so much then that I just I, I continued to you know I was continued to be competitive I continued to strive to do the best I could um, like when my my son one of my sons played football you know as a kid for a while and I, I didn't I didn't prohibit it but I tell you I did not encourage it um, the last I mean I wasn't going to be one of those parents who like hey you know, by God, you're going to get out there and play football because you're, you know, you're going to be a man. Um, you know, the, there's no way I would have done that because if something would have happened bad, yeah. I, I wouldn't be the one, you know, to have, to have pushed a son into that, you know, the, God, that would have been the worst thing. Um, but, you know, and, and my kids, you know, my kids have, you know, from day one, they, they've known nothing else other than, having a father with a major physical disability. And so, um, you know, it's, um, and I don't, I don't think they've ever been, uh, I mean, I've got great relationship with my kids. Um, I don't think they've ever been like embarrassed to, you know, be walking around with me or even, you know, when they're younger, you know, Um, because, you know, all, you know, kids, I've gotten used to, you know, I I would, my oldest son who was when he was in kindergarten, I, I would, I would ha- I would walk him to class every day because he was you know he was scared to go in so well I walked him for like thirty days so you know I'm walking you got all these little kids over there just you know as I'm walking you can just see him staring and you know pointing and that kind of stuff but but my kids have never um, you know they, they never they, they, I don't think they've ever been like you know embarrassed like oh there's there's my dad who who walks so funny um, mm-hmm. uh, so so I, I you know I, I'm trying to think if I've become a like a different parent because of my injury. I, I don't think so. I think I've taken the same 
um, my, the same personality, um, you know, what I brought into the injury and then what I've learned after it, you know, into being a parent and just trying to be a loving, supportive parent who, um, you know, I, I've wanted my kids to be, you know, as successful as, as possible. But, um, you know, I don't think I didn't. My wife and I really didn't push our kids. Maybe that's a, maybe I, I didn't push my I didn't really push my kids, you know, to the brink of them. Like, you know, just, you know, I just can't take this anymore. I, I or like push them like you, you know, you got to get your grades up. You got to make all A's. You got to be the best athlete. You got to be this. Yeah, that's you know, we, we've never done that. Um, I, we've kind of let our let our kids kind of become their own people. Um, of course, of course, the problem with that is you know they you know they made okay grades, but they certainly weren't at the, weren't at the top of their class. But uh, yeah. but all but they're my two that went to college. They they they've graduated. And they're, they're out working now, and so um, they they seem to be very well adapted kids. And um, so I mean, I, I think we my wife and I did a pretty good job parenting them. Yeah. So there's this theme that has, you know, showed up over and over in our conversation of the fact that you weren't going to let this thing define you and you're going to live your life and, and, you know, push it to the, the limits of what's possible regardless. And this is something I've asked people in some form or another, the the sort of relativity of, of grief, you know, so people have far worse responses to far less dire situations than the one that you're in. Why yeah. is that? You know, I, I don't know what's going on in the heads of some other people on why they do this. I mean, it's and, and it may be, you know, what happens, what happened in their life before what the event they had, whether whether it be minor or a major event. I mean, if you if you if your personality or your level of confidence or you, you know, if you're if you're not a happy person going into something. And then something bad happens and it may not even be, you know, when, when you, you know, not that I, I've ever wanted to, to compare tragic events, but, but if somebody, you know, has something that you would think maybe not be that, that big of a deal and they, and they just fall apart, you know, it, it's, it might be that because, you know, the type of person they were coming into it, like, you know, I was a very strong, confident person when this happened. And so I, I, I continued with that, you know, I guess if I, you know, had issues of self doubt or, you know, you know, problems like that, when, when this happened, may, you know, I don't know, may, maybe the, the, the effort or the, you know, to, to move on and try to live your best life, maybe it wouldn't have been there. I don't, you know, I, I it's, it's, it's hard to say really to me why, why people don't, or why people, some people just kind of quit and fall apart. Why, why they do, you know, it's, it's, I really don't know. Wow. wow. Uh, well, this has been really, really fascinating. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting with you and learned a ton. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, give me, give me the definition of unmistakable. So All right. That. So my definition of unmistakable, because I wrote a book called unmistakable and you have to define it apparently when you write a book called that, uh, <laughs> is something that is so distinctive that nobody else could have done it, but you. Well, um, I don't want, I mean, it's hard to say that nobody could have achieved what I, I did after my injury. Cause I'm sure there's people out there that have done 
that have had horrible injuries or horrible physical things happen to them that have done just as well or better than than, than I have. Um, but I think what's what's different um, about me is well, I mean, it was it's the it was the constant drive to 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 be successful and to to live a, to live a, a great life. It was, I mean, knowing all right, I've got this physical disability, so knowing I'm going to struggle physically every day. Um, I, I'm going to struggle to walk, you know, to class in college. I'm going to struggle to walk into the office every day. I'm going to struggle to 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 walk in the in the courtroom. But but you don't let the physical struggle, you know, change what you want the outcome to be, which is. You know, I want to live my. I want to live a great life. You know, we we got one life. I mean, this is it. And so, so you have one part of your life that's that you know is not the greatest. The physical, like for me, the physical part of it. I'm not going to let that screw up the rest of it. And so, I mean, it, to me, it's all this quest for just having a great life because this is all you got. You know, and and if you you know if you quit, you know, well then there goes your life. So, uh, so I guess, you know, to sum it up, I'm just, I'm all about just having the best, you know, I want to lead the best life I can lead. I want to be as happy as I can. I want to do as many great things as I can. I just want to want to have a great life. Mm, Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. Um, Where can people find out more about you, your book, your work and everything else you're up to? Yeah, I've, well, my book um, is the best way to do it is just go on Amazon and get it. It's called Get Back Up. Although I do have a website, which my website though is not much more than a landing page. Um, it's www.rodkate.com. Um, but you know, if people want to follow me, I've got a YouTube channel. If they just want to, you know, put Rod Kate in there, I've got some. You know, I've given some talks. Um, I, I've got some videos of me working out on there. Um, and so if you, if you're curious to see what, I what I really, what I, how I walk and how I, um, I do my physical stuff, I, I, I put some of the workout stuff on YouTube and, you know, I've got an Instagram account, just, you know, look up Rod Kate. I've got some photos on there and that kind of stuff. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating? inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.